Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be together today to lift up those wonderful praises to the Lord. I hope your your heart has been warmed by even that song selection and what we've just sung, those wonderful truths about our God and how great He is. And now we want to hear from Him, from His words. So I'd invite you to take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, we'll continue our exposition Back in World War II, there was a very famous general. You'll recognize the name, George Patton. Some of you will will recognize that name. There's been movies made about him. Uh, He was well known for cultivating the spirit of attack. And in 1944, his plan of the swift advance of his troops stunned the Germans so much that it ultimately would lead to the fall of Adolf Hitler, and, um, and they would be weakened. He's known for saying the greatest security is found in advancing against the enemy. And the writer to the Hebrews is advocating this very thing in the Christian life. You'll remember he's already talked about that, that, we've, we've become, that, that they have become dull of hearing. And for us to, to examine ourselves, that, that now we, that they couldn't take solid food. They, they, they needed milk again. And then the, the last time, the, the pressing on to maturity. And so the writer to the Hebrews is saying that very thing, that you must be advancing, you must be growing in the Christian life. Patton also said, I don't like paying for the same real estate twice. You remember Bunyan and his Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian lost his scroll on the hill of difficulty, and he has to go, or he realizes he's lost it, which is the picture of assurance of salvation. He has to go back down the hill of difficulty, and as he's coming back, he's woeing and, and rebuking himself, you know, to go over the same ground to the celestial city. This is the third time, because I've gone up, I've come back, and here I am again. What a fool! And so too for us, if we're not advancing, we're regressing. Andrew Murray says, in war, it is often said that there is no safety but in advance. The standstill is to, go, to, standstill is to go back and to lose ground. So the argument is, instead of falling away, as we'll see in our text today, instead of falling away, we must press on to maturity. We need to make sure that we are indeed in the faith. So as we consider in our text, who is in danger of falling away and why apostasy is a real and present danger for each one that professes Christ. So this is a very sobering message. It should be. The writer of the Hebrews meant it to be to his hearers, and that we need to hear it because it's in God's Word. This is not the, the text that I would go to if we just preach topical sermons all over the Bible. Um, I would not pick this ever, okay, this particular text. Uh, in 50 years of preaching, I would not pick this, but we believe in the consecutive, expository, preaching through the books of the Bible, and so um, we will take it up. So the title of the warning is a divine warning and remedy for wandering souls. A divine warning and remedy for wandering souls. We need to see this as what it is. It's a warning. It's when you're going 70 miles an hour, you've rented a car, you're in an area that you don't know, okay, and you're in the middle of nowhere, but you're on a road, and it says bridge out two miles ahead. Bridge out one mile ahead. 
And you're just, you continue going 70 miles an hour, you're talking to your wife, bridge out 500 feet. The warning sign is meant for you to do something. Take your foot off the gas, slow down. There's danger up ahead. And that's the way we should look at this text. So let's read verses 1 to 8. Hebrews 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask that by your Spirit you would give us clarity and understanding from this very text today. We confess that our minds are limited and we are weak and we need supernatural help to understand what you would have for us from this text and even this entire book that we've been working through. And so we ask you, Lord, please send the Spirit of God, remove cares and distractions, and Lord, may you revive in us by your Spirit a greater diligence to take heed to warnings and to lay aside laziness and lethargy that we would be those that bring the fullest honor and glory possible to your great name. We pray the name in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So as I said back in 5.11, the warning section begins in 5.11, and it says, concerning him we have, or concerning which, we have much to say, but it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he's begun setting and painting the picture of Christ as our great high priest. He's beginning to unpack that it's according to the, the order of Melchizedek, and he can tell that eyes are glazing over. People are nodding off. They're not grasping what's being taught. And so he says, you become dull, and, and by this time you ought to be teachers. But now you have someone to teach, need someone to teach you the elementary principles and the oracles of God. And then, of course, last time we saw there in, in verse 1 of chapter 6, let us press on to maturity. Let us press on leaving the elementary teachings. Not that the elementary teachings are bad, but don't don't go back and play with the blocks and the ABCs. Let's move on to the classics. Let us press on to maturity and understanding all that we are to understand about Christ. He gives these, remember the six foundation stones there, not laying again a foundation. And then he lists these six things and they're coming three pairs, right? 
And we looked at those, and they could be applicable to the Jewish mind or the early Jewish Christian home and the inward response, a call of repentance and faith towards God. The outward response it talks about the, the idea of washings and the laying on of hands, and then that future uh, eschatological anticipation of the resurrection and finally the last judgment. And then in verse 3, he makes it clear, this we will do, we will continue teaching, we will see you to mature if God permits. So there's an acknowledgement that God has to be at work. We don't do this in our own effort. So as I said, this is the third of five warning sections that we find ourselves in. And really, these next today's sermon and next time in verses 9 to 12 present two sides of this strong exhortation. You've got this first section that we're looking at today, which is a very strong warning, but it's immediately followed up in verses 9 to 12, and I don't want you to lose sight of that with strong encouragement. They go together, and it's vital that we understand this. The descriptive terms here are, can be confusing. There's five participle phrases. They actually, the way it's laid out in the Greek is, is somewhat complex. It's, it's a rhetorical way of setting forth what the writer is trying to get through. But these are words that, that can be confusing. Once who have been enlightened, they've tasted of the heavenly gift. What in the world does that mean? Uh, you know, partakers of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to have to wrestle through with this text. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of different views that have been set forth by people to seek to explain this. And we will unpack it. In fact, recent scholarship has attributed this text to the Old Testament wilderness generation. There's some merit to that. Okay, remember the last warning section we spent in chapters 3 and 4 was all based off of Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden, their, harden your hearts like they did in the wilderness, that wilderness generation. And the writer then takes and applies Psalm 95 to his hearers and drives it home. The other warning sections allude to the Old Testament. So there's some merit to that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I just want to mention that. In verses 7 and 8, there's this agricultural illustration, which we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on, but kind of reminds me of the, the blessings and the curse, like you see in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and 30. We read the kind of the summary at, at chapter 30, but, but you think of that, it's the end of the Pentateuch, you got the wilderness generation. At the very end, there's this choose life right? Choose life. And, and the writer to the Hebrews seems to be pushing that message again and again. The main thought in these verses that we're taking up today, it is impossible. It is impossible. At literally in the Greek, it's impossible. It's the very first word in verse 4. The NAS tucks it down in verse 6 so it completes the sentence. Impossible those who have been enlightened in all five participle phrases, and then it goes to renew them again to repentance. These people that have tasted and come so close, it's impossible to renew them unto repentance. And those two parts of that main clause, that would be the main clause and, and, and all of that, is separated by those five clauses describing who these people are. So it's very important that we understand who these people are. So first of all, 
let's consider how this text is related to what has gone before. And you see the word for, and sometimes you can just go, okay, that refers to verse 3, but I think it refers all the way back to 5.11, the thought of immaturity, the rebuked immaturity, pressing on to um, maturity. And, and, and so for, by the way, those who have come so close but have fallen short, it's impossible to renew them. The word impossible, wait for it, means impossible, okay? It means impossible, and I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit later. And so let's take up just briefly these descriptive terms. Who are these people? How are they described? We see these traits listed in, in these participle phrases. They're all aorist participles, which is past tense, which points to an event in the past, a completed action in the past. So they've been enlightened at some point. They've tasted at some point. And so we need to wrestle with that. Some of the early church fathers, and even some few still hold to this, um, the idea that, that all of these terms refer to the sacramental life in the church. And so um, I'll, I'll make reference to that, but uh, essentially that it's referring to baptism, the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the word and signs and wonders. There's some merit to that, if you think of that. Once been enlightened, that's baptism. They've tasted the Lord's Supper. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God, the preaching of the word, and the signs and wonders that were there. There's some merit to that. Well, let's just start going through these. Those who have once been enlightened, the little uh, adverb there could refer to all five participle phrases. I could just refer to that first one, that they have once been enlightened. Now, this uh, participle is in the passive voice. That means that we don't enlighten ourselves, right? It comes from an outside source, and so... Um, it is God who has enlightened us uh, to some level and for his purposes. The writer uses it later in chapter 10. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured such a great conflict of sufferings. As I said, the uh, early church fathers would say that this refers to baptism. Others would say this refers to the, the, the fire, the, the pillar of fire in the wilderness journeys, right? Those that take that exodus uh, view. But I take this to mean someone that has come so close to the means of grace. Maybe they've been around us, you know, just driving it home to us, been around us for some months. They've seen powerful answers to prayer. They've seen people impacted by the word of God. They've seen people converted and even profess their faith and be baptized out there in that courtyard. And yet, they're fair weather followers and they fall away. There's been some enlightenment, some excitement. It's like the parable of the soils, right? The one that hits on shallow ground does what? There's, there's a rock shelf under the soil. You've got a couple inches of soil. And what happens is that seed can't push down under, under the rock. And so what happens is it, it, it makes up for it by sprouting up extra tall and quicker than even real, real the, the, the good fruit, right? And what happens? It withers away because it has no firm root in itself. So we see this response all the time to the gospel. There's, there seems to be an enlightenment. There's a response. There's a joy. They receive it with joy, Jesus says. 
They've had their minds expanded and enlightened to gospel truth. That word here that John uses it in his gospel, uh, there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And so enlightens every man, that doesn't mean every man is saved, but enlightens that this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah. Secondly, those who have tasted of the heavenly gift. Um, Lexicon says to experience something um, in the mind and emotionally, to come to know. So it's a common metaphor. We saw it back in chapter 2 and verse 9, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he, that is Jesus, might taste death for everyone. So as I said, the early church would say this would refer to the Lord's table. But I think here, once have been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, again, they've come so close to the means of grace. They've, they've, they've seen the Lord at work. Thirdly, partakers of the Holy Spirit. This language of participation should hearken our mind back to chapter 3. Just take your Bibles and turn one page. Go to chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren partakers of a heavenly calling consider jesus in verse 14 of chapter 3 for we have become partakers of christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end and so this language of participation is used and then in verse 5 Uh, It looks like it's two, it's really one. Having tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, those are united together, speaking of the word and the power that's associated with the proclamation of the word. They seem to communicate, um, they've witnessed something of the inbreaking of the age and the coming of Messiah, and so the power of the word with signs and wonders. Go back to chapter 2 with me, please. Chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4. This is, comes to in, the, in, in that first warning section, which is 2, 1 to 4, but it says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord... It was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. There's a communication, a passing down of spiritual truth. It's associated with signs and wonders. And so this tasting of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come seem to illustrate that. Well, who are these people? As I said, there's at least 10 different views, and I'm going to lump several of those into one heading. <laughs> Many try to soften what this text is saying. Okay, You see that in some Bible translations? They soften it, and um, they soften what's being said. The first way they try to soften it is that impossible means very, very difficult, but still possible, okay? It does, impossible doesn't mean impossible, <laughs> okay? So that softens the text. Whew, okay, good, it's still possible. I'm so glad. Well, wait, no, I don't think the text is saying that. And so even a certain lexicon actually um, brings that out, that it's very difficult. I think they're wrong. It means impossible. The second way it's softened is, by the hypothetical 
That this is just, it's, this isn't real. There's not a real falling away, but it's hypothetical. You should live the Christian life in such a way that you don't fall away. So it's hypothetical. This could happen, and some translations insert the word if they fall away, but it doesn't say that. It says those who have fallen away. Impossible. Those who have fallen away. Another way that they soften it is that this actually is kind of like 1 Corinthians 3 where, you know, everything's burnt up, but the soul is saved. And so it's a loss of earthly rewards, okay? But your soul is saved. I think all of those and others could be thrown in there uh, that don't need to be mentioned. Um, Seek to soften the text. Look, brethren, it's not our job to soften the text, God has given us his word exactly the way he, ne- he knows that we need it. And it is not for us to, to, you know, that's, to pull out certain themes that we don't like or that make us uncomfortable. We have to be faithful to the text. The second area is the, what I would just call the Arminian position, which is it receives a lot of press, and many still believe this. And that would teach that these terms, these participles that are used, describe true Christians, real Christians, that Christ has shed his blood for. Okay, True Christians that, 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 that have come and been converted to Christ, that have experienced regeneration, that have been born again. And, and you look at those terms, and you go, yeah, I mean, I've been enlightened. I've tasted of the heavenly gift. Like, we can, all of us can put those terms and apply them to us, right? Because they're true. John Wesley held to this, and he says this on this text. The expressions here used are so strong and clear that they cannot, without gross wrestling, be understood of any except true believers. And that represents the Arminian position. I have serious problems with that view. I'm going to give you three main reasons, okay? And maybe you've come and maybe you've always believed that. I would encourage you to listen to these reasons. First of all, the rule of biblical interpretation is that we interpret the difficult text by examining that which is more clear, Okay, so we, we compare Scripture with Scripture. That's the, the, the hermeneutic used by the Protestants. Okay, That's how we come to build doctrine from the Word of God. It, it's, it's, it, we're comparing Scripture to Scripture. Even our Confession of Faith, our 1689, the chapter 1, is on the Holy Scriptures. It says in paragraph 7, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened up in some other place of Scripture. So we compare Scripture with Scripture. And so let's do that. Let's consider some texts that are crystal clear. Turn to John chapter 10. Gospel of John chapter 10.
The context of John chapter 10 is the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the one that lays down his life for the sheep. He is the one that says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. He says he's the good shepherd. He lays down his life. I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 15, it goes all the way down and look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now these are the very words of Christ. If you hold to Wesley's view the Wesleyans and all the Arminians, a view of Hebrews chapter 6, you've got to wrestle with the words of Christ. Is Jesus lying here? What does he mean no one will snatch them out of my hand? What is he saying? Paul in Philippians 1.6, right? We know that text. He who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 8. And by the way, this is just a sampling. I mean, we could spend the rest of our time looking at verses that speak to the perseverance of the saints. This is just a sampling. Chapter 8, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Skipping down to verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Several other texts can be cited but we look at the clear text to try to inform our understanding of this very difficult text that either means genuine believers lose their salvation or it's speaking of those that profess to believe that we think are Christians that ultimately fall away. The third reason is, go back to Hebrews 6, is the immediate context in which this um, uh, warning comes to us. First of all, verse 9, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. There is a shift from those who he's talking about. In fact, just I have this later in my notes, but look at the pronouns. Look at verse 1, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us, first person, right? First person plural. The writer includes himself. Let us collectively, brethren, press on to maturity. Look at verse 4. For in the case of those, you see the shift in the pronouns? You see how important grammar is? And then in verse 9, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. The first and second person is used when it speaks of the saints. But the third person is used when it's speaking of those, in the case of those people out here. 
Okay, so the pronouns are very important. Secondly, the immediate context. Look, he's going to go into the, verses 9 to 12 is a great encouragement. Uh, he talks about the promises. He talks about the full assurance of hope. But then also down in verse 17, for in the same way, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one that enters within the veil where Jesus entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The immediate context, when you have a difficult text, you look at what's the broader context actually communicating. Well, what do I hold to? I hold to what is commonly called the Reformed view, um, that this refers to apparent saints. In other words, that this refers to those that maybe we've served with, maybe we've even baptized. We've seen a couple uh, apostatized, people that I've baptized over the years And it's referring to those that are professors of religion, but are no true Christians at all. They maybe even demonstrated some fruit in their life, but they're no Christians at all. These are referring to those that profess because we hold to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. True Christians do not lose their salvation. We're not in salvation, out of salvation day by day. Not even your performance, not even your carnality can pop you out of salvation. You are saved. You will be saved for all eternity. Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. The work of paying for your sin has been done once and for all. Kent Hughes makes this observation, the participation in spiritual realities of those who fall away, though they have been enlightened and shared and tasted of the things of God, parallels the privileged experience of the children of Israel in the wilderness who had fell away and died in unbelief. As part of the covenant community, the fallen Israelites had placed blood on the doorpost. They'd eaten the very Passover lamb. They miraculously crossed the Red Sea as it was parted. They observed the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. They tasted of the miraculous waters at Marah and daily ate of the manna that fell from the sky. They heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai. But their hearts were hardened, right? Their hearts were hardened. They were were given to unbelief and they fell away from the living God. What's my point? Well, my point with quoting that is I think that illustrates very beautifully that these, these were people that were in the covenant community, right? But as Psalm 95 says, they, they hardened their hearts, they provoked, and I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Well, for us, the covenant community of the local church, there are some that appear to be Christians that are no Christians at all. And we're not trying to cast doubt that everybody leaves and I'm not really a Christian, okay? But a warning is meant to be a warning. You should have dealings with God and ask yourself, do I have the marks of a true Christian, 
Or am I just playing the game? Am I, did, I, did I adopt the new language of Christianese so that I fit right in? Do I know the words, oh, in the providence of God and things like that? Maybe you've adopted these kinds of things, but you know you're outside of Christ. It's a warning to flee to the place of refuge, to run to Christ. About four weeks ago, we received an email through the church. It was a man trying to sell a reformed library, 1,200 volumes. Wow, Massimo. I thought of Massimo. If he was giving it away, it would be great for him or somebody uh, wanting to have a good reformed library. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll help you. And he sent me a list. I looked through it. I forwarded it to a couple of people. I know a guy in Oklahoma that buys libraries and sells the books for a living. And so I tried to connect. And, and I came across clearing, cleaning out my inbox and I, the Lord prompted me to write him, you live in El Cajon, you pastored in Pennsylvania for some years, you live here in San... Where are you going to church? What, what, what are you doing? I don't go to church. I would characterize myself as an agnostic. So somebody that was in the ministry for some years, had a good library, 80% of the books that he has, I own. And this man has fallen away. I haven't written them back after that. I wept. I wept. It's impossible. Now, we should never, ever put people through the grid. Now, I'm not saying this is him. Maybe there's still hope for him, and we can pray into that end, okay? Maybe there is. We should never, ever say, well, this guy has fallen away because he maybe he's backsliding for some time, but the Lord will bring him back if he's one of his parable the sower i've already mentioned you have those seeds um, obviously the one that falls on the hard ground but the shallow ground and the one that where the the thorns grow with it and entangled by all the things of the world so that it's choked out and can't give any fruit and then of course the good soil that bears fruit maybe you're you know uh, maybe you're not bearing fruit a hundredfold but you're bearing some fruit as a child of god so we've seen who is being addressed we've considered briefly some of the various views now let's talk about the severity of this warning Who is being addressed? It refers to those people who have some personal knowledge of Christianity, but it is an indirect and not a saving knowledge. Now, what does it say of these? And then have fallen away. That's actually the fifth participle, but it's one word in the Greek. It's, it comes as a shock. It's dramatically erupt. It's shocking. These sober words, and fallen away. Those that have fallen away, they've, 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 they've been enlightened, they've, they've tasted, they've become partakers, they've tasted of the word and the powers and fallen away. They've fallen away. It means to, to fail, to follow through on a commitment, to commit apostasy. The words that he uses in the Greek here, most of them only occur one time in the Greek New Testament, very unique, complex words. He's, 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 a masterful exegete as he's really exegeting the Old Testament scriptures and bringing about the new covenant. And he uses language in such a way that none other of the gospel or the New Testament writers do with the Greek language. Now, 
the, the root we see in Galatians 5.4. You have been severed from Christ, Paul says. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. That's a shortened version of uh, the, the word that he actually used. Uh, this is speaking of apostasy. It's a terrifying thought. How do people fall away? I mean, think of the, the, the Exodus generation. It's by hardening their heart. It's by doubting the power and the authority of God. It's beginning to put yourself on the throne and thinking that you know better than God to disdain the salvation that he offers. And, and as I said, some make attempts to soften these verses. We can't do that. The author to the Hebrews obviously thought that there were some amongst his hearers that needed to hear this warning, that the danger of apostasy is real. I mean, we saw that back in chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And here again, and we'll see it again. There's more warnings to come, right? And so he's weaving beautiful promises and exposition, but then he's also giving warnings. And we need those warnings too. The thrust of the passage is to avoid at all costs the real and present danger of apostasy. We certainly believe in the perseverance of the saints. Yes and amen. But we need the warnings as well. And and as I said, this text is not a grid by which you think of Uncle Billy in Arizona. Maybe he's here. Um, Or maybe it's that neighbor, you know, professes faith. They go to that whatever, you know, some other church. And and, and you begin to say, I wonder if they're here. No, don't use this text like that. Use this text as a mirror to examine yourself. That's what it's meant for, right? Right? It's meant to ask yourself this. Think of those whom you've known over the years. I mean, I think every one of us can say, if you've been in in the Lord for some time, yeah, I did know somebody at my last church, or maybe this church, or I did know somebody that I thought was a Christian. They professed faith for years, and they're gone. They're gone. John, in 1 John 2.19, you know the text, they went out from us but they were not really of us. If they had really been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were not of us. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? You ever think of that? Well, Peter failed. You know, his faith failed. He demonstrated faithlessness towards God. Like most Christians do in seasons in our life, there's times when we're weak, times maybe where we'll deny the Lord. But Judas outright rejected Jesus as Messiah. One did not live up to the high calling of of a Christian and, and living up to the cross. The other despised the cross. There's a difference, right? Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. I think we have an example here of somebody like this, Simon Magus. Remember him? Verse 12. But when they believed, Philip 
preaching the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. As he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. We have a man that it's said that he believed, it's said that he was baptized, right? And Simon, by the way, if you go back to verse 9, was formerly practicing magic in the city and astonishing people, claiming to be someone great. So this is, from all indications, a miraculous conversion, okay? Verse 14, and when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria, he received the word and they sent Peter and John and they came down and they prayed with them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. But he had not fallen on any of them yet and they had just simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now we're back to Simon. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this authority as well, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, Peter said, May your silver perish with you. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you said may come upon me. What do we see here? We see somebody that apparently believed, somebody that made some profession and was baptized, but obviously was not a true Christian. In our own book, we're going to get to it, chapter 12 and verse 15. You'll turn there briefly. Remember Esau. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he had desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. It's a frightening text, isn't it? He, he's weeping. He, he's, he's wanting to repent. He's wanting to come back. But he found there's no place for repentance. So really what we see here is what Jesus calls blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All other sins will be forgiven of men. Mark 3.29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Well, it is impossible to renew these. It's impossible, impossible, those who had all of these things and have fallen away, to renew them again. By the way, the writer uses impossible four times in the book of Hebrews, and guess what? It means impossible every time. Um, Chapter 10 and verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We believe that, right? It's only the blood of Christ. 
Chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Certainly, we're not going to please God if there's not faith, right? It's impossible. So impossible really does mean impossible. To renew again is, is the idea of, we see it in a positive sense, where Paul talks about we don't lose heart, the outer man is decaying, but the inner man is what? Being renewed day by day. We're told to be renewing our minds, but here it is saying it is impossible if you've fallen away to be renewed again unto repentance. And what are the reasons? Well, they come at the end of verse 6 here. Since or while they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This is actually a present tense. Again, it just occurs one time here. Um, they're stubborn in their rejection of Christ, and so therefore their disposition of their mind and, and their behavior, they are, in a sense, taking the hammer and taking the nails out and saying, no, Christ, you will be crucified again. That's the idea. That's the imagery that the writer wants us to get. But it's more than that. It's disgracing him, putting him to open shame, a very complex word. But um, the the root of it you see in uh, Matthew 119 when Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace Mary being with child, right? Plan to send her away secretly, putting Jesus to public disgrace, all that disgrace, that humiliation on the cross, being naked and nailed to the cross and dying for our sins. That's essentially what you're doing when you seek to crucify again because you spurn his great work. The reason why renewal of such apostates is impossible is they crucify again Christ in their minds and in their hearts and put him to open shame. Well, verses 7 and 8, just a question. Are you fruitful or worthless? Okay, let's read it again. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, brings forth vegetation useful for those for whose sake it is tilled and receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. Are you fruitful or are you worthless? The word he uses for worthless is very strong, eight times in the New Testament, a dokimos, and it means to be a, a castaway. It's what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 9, that, that I myself might be found to be worthless if I do not preach rightly unto others. Fruitlessness is condemned here. It's a very vivid parable, and as a matter of fact, another um, See if I can find where I wanted to mention something. My notes are all messed up this time. By the way, this is not talking about, so verses 7 and 8 is an illustration, right? It's an illustration to illustrate what had just come before. And it's not talking about a fruitful field that suddenly became unfruitful. It's talking about two different fields, the fruitful field and the worthless one, right, that's yielding thorns. And so, too, the text would, I think, hold to the idea that you have true Christians and you have false professors. 
So I wanted to make that point. Well, let's draw a couple concluding applications, brethren. We need to heed this warning. We need this warning. I need this warning, okay? We need need to examine ourselves through this text. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Some of us have been, some of you have been Christians for 50, 40, 30 years, some maybe one year, some maybe only a few months. You know what? This text is for all of us. Doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord. Peter needed this warning. The disciples needed this warning. The first century hearers in Rome that were being persecuted needed this warning because the Holy Spirit moved and prompted the author to include it. And we in the 21st century need these warnings. And maybe you're tempted to take the easy way out and not face the difficult things in your life today. You need to rely on Christ. By the way, repentance also, to keep short accounts with God is so vital. Repentance is not a one and done. Okay, 1 John 1.9, when I first come to Christ, and it's a lifestyle of repentance, of confessing and forsaking and being uh, growing in our sanctification. We read in Matthew 7 earlier those strong warnings Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will declare to them most startling words in all of Scripture from the mouth of Christ. I never knew you. I never really knew you. You never really knew me. Depart from me. Depart from me as you're cast into everlasting darkness. To have that echo, depart from me. I never knew you. You see how important it is to make sure that we're not self-deceived. How important it is to to fly to Christ, to realize that, that in Him we can be assured of our salvation. As we examine ourselves and we see the requisite fruits that should be present in our lives. John Piper preaching on this sermon over 20 years ago. His conclusion says this. How does this apply to us? In Piper-esque verbiage, I'm not going to try to imitate him. I'll be very personal and give you the sharpest point. If in the coming years, I, John Piper, commit apostasy and fall away from Christ, it will not be because I have not tasted of the word of God and the spirit of God and the miracles of God and have not drunk his word. The spirit has touched me and I have seen his miracles and I have been his instrument for a few. But, but if over the next 10 or 20 years, John Piper begins to cool off spiritually lose interest in the spiritual things, and become more fascinated with making money and writing Christian books, if I buy the lie that a new wife would be more exhilarating and my children can fend for themselves, and the church of Christ is a drag, and that the incarnation is a myth, and that there is one life to live, and so let us eat, drink, and be merry. If that happens, then you know the truth is this. John Piper was mightily deceived for the first 50 years of his life. You see what he's doing here? The very thing I encourage you to do with this text 
It's a mirror for you. Don't try to shove everybody else. Put it, who's going to fit through the grid? Who's, who's really deceived? It's not our business. We need to examine ourselves, brethren. Many of you know John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The man in the iron cage, Bunyan, uses this very verse, actually, as he's describing that. And I just want to read this for you. It's an interpreter's house. There's seven, the number of completeness. Interpreter is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's early in his walk. Actually, the burden hasn't even fallen off yet, but he's being shown important things that would, he would carry with him for his life. So he took him by the hand and led him into a very dark room where there sat a man in an iron cage. Now the man to look on seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded, and he sighed as though it would break his heart. Then said Christian to the man, What art thou? The man answered, I am what I was not once. What were you once? The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor, both in my own eyes and in the eyes of other, others. And, and I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city. And had even joy at the thoughts that I would enter then. Christian asked, well, but what are you now? He says, I am a man in despair. I am shut up in it. And and as I am in this iron cage and I cannot get out. No, I cannot get out. But how did you come into this condition? I left off to watch and be sober. I let the reins upon, I laid the reins upon the neck of my lust, and I sinned against the light of his word and the goodness of God. I've grieved the spirit of God and he is gone. I've tempted the devil and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Christian's distraught at this. He told him, is there no hope? But you must be kept in this iron cage of despair. No, not at all. Why? The son of the blessed is most most pitiful. He's merciful. The man says this, I've crucified him to myself afresh. I've despised his person. I've despised his righteousness. I've counted his blood an unholy thing, and I have done despite the spirit of grace. And therefore, I have shut myself out of all of the promises, and there remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, faithful threatenings of certain judgment and firing indignation that shall devour me as an adversary. Bunyan was a good pastor. And Pilgrim's Progress, he brings up several pastoral situations. And here, he's bringing up the one we just considered today. It's a warning. And it goes on to say, I believe interpreter says something like, let this man's misery be in your mind all of your days as you go. Brethren, this is a strong call for us. We who profess faith, we who, who believe we're Christians, that, that we should have a greater hunger and thirst after the things of God, that we want to see sanctification more vital in our lives, that we long for glorification, that we weep and we mourn over our sin. Blessed is the one who is poor in spirit. Blessed is the one who mourns. 
Peter's three denials we have illustrated in Scripture, but yet he's restored in a beautiful, beautiful way. There's a difference between a a continual denying of the Lord and hardening the heart and a moment of weakness of denying and coming in repentance. There's a difference there. I love that post-resurrection interplay that we have in John 21. We don't have time to turn there. Do you remember Jesus is restoring Peter? He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Right? Of course, he responds, I phileo you. Do you agape me? I phileo, you know, that kind of thing. The question for us, do I love Christ? Am I one of his? You think of that scene at the Lord's table as uh, it's being instituted. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Remember what they said? All the good disciples? Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it I? We need to take this text on our knees, in our prayer closet. Lord, is it I? Is it I? Have mercy before it's too late. And beg him to reach out. If you're outside of Christ today, you're carrying a burden of sin. There's so much guilt that you're carrying around. You need to come and be freed and and have that burden fall into the sepulcher and to be free. Come to Christ. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. Come to him, confessing your sins, repenting of your sins, and believing that he is a suitable Savior. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for even the very difficult warning passages that we've considered today. Lord, have your way in each one of us. Lord, we are about to sing a beautiful song of assurance. And Lord, may that just encourage our hearts that we are complete in you, those of us who are true Christians. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.